today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Hi, this is Scott Thompson, and welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Feel free to subscribe and tell all your friends. Coming up on today's show, serial killer Bruce MacArthur pleads guilty to the deaths of eight men. That's coming up. Also, the U.S. has laid out its charges against Huawei and why it will be extraditing the Huawei CFO. And former Prime Minister Stephen Harper is offering advice on how to combat the divisiveness and extremism we see in today's politics. It's all coming up on the podcast. Enjoy the show. Bruce MacArthur has pleaded guilty to the charges in the deaths of eight men. Uh, Of course, it's been announced over the last 24 hours that something was going to come down. Lots of speculation. Uh, Let's bring in Ross McLean, crime specialist, security expert, former Toronto police officer, RossMcLeanSecurity.com to find out more. He's with us now. Ross, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Are you finished digging yet? Uh, actually, I'm still trapped. I'm going to make a, an attempt to run this 40-yard driveway I've got out here. It hasn't been plowed yet after the after this interview. So, all right. So, uh, rumors started floating around that there was something coming up within the last uh, 24 hours or so. Uh, what were you hearing? Yeah, well, of course, we've seen everything from the time that he uh, he waived his right to have to have a pretrial hearing. You know, that certainly signaled to me that likely there was going to be a plea coming up or some such thing. And we had that notification to be a big development. And the police said there'd be lots of room for the media trucks outside all day, which, you know, certainly led me to believe it was going to be a, a, a good outcome, if you will. But uh, you still can't believe these things until it's done and the papers are signed and it's been stamped. And, and that's what's happened. He has pled guilty to all eight murders in the first degree. So that is a done deal. Is no longer an alleged serial killer. He's Bruce MacArthur, serial killer. So that means no need for a long, drawn-out trial, all that sort of thing. Right. It saves the problem of the trial, all the time with the trial, uh, which also exacerbates the, the damage and the emotional damage to the families who have to hear and listen to the witness, and people have to go up and testify about it and prepare for it. So all the damage of that is... Uh, put to the side to some degree, although the damage is already done for for all those involved in the case on the police side and on the victim side. What is in this for him, for Bruce MacArthur? Well, you know, I don't think there's really anything in it for him. The police's case here, uh, as you know, I was very close to it, literally physically and geographically. I live not far away from the house where the bodies were buried. Uh, which, by the way, the owner of the house said outside the courtroom that she met two of the victims. Bruce MacArthur brought them around. Oh, my. And she actually talked to them, believe it or not. Uh, that was just shocking to hear that. But uh, back to the, where the case is going, I knew from looking at the case, the detectives, the amount of forensic evidence they had talking to some of the lead forensic investigators, that their case was overwhelming. So this, in UFC terms, was a submission and a tap-out the police had have to give nothing. Like they, they, they don't have to offer anything. They will get their convictions regardless because of the case. Now, the only thing that some people are suggesting might come up is the ability to say that, oh, yeah, he can apply for parole after 25 years. I, I don't think that's going to even be there realistically. 
I think it's just going to be a straight out sentencing without many concessions. I mean, I could be surprised by that, but well, there's there's the issue reason. the issue with the new law in regard to consecutive sentences. You know, um, in, instead of a concurrent sentences, instead of serving everything uh, at once, you serve one right after the other. We saw that happen uh, with the case with Dellen Millard. Uh, I'm guessing with the case of, of Bruce MacArthur and, and pleading guilty uh, to eight counts of, of first degree murder. Again, that's who this sort of law is designed for. So would, I mean, don't, do you think he will serve them uh, concurrently or consecutively? Well, uh, I should hope uh, consecutively, meaning each one of them should be laid out there. Right, because right the last, the Because the last signal that you want to send out as a justice system is that if you're in for one murder or three, you might as well go for ten. Right. Like, that's the last signal you want to send out as a justice system. And I think what it shows is how, where our society sees this sort of uh, issue. So for the sake of... Uh, making the statement, I, I should hope that this judge will go with consecutive. Well, and again, very similar to the Dellen Millard case, if, you know, why is this law there? It's there to protect us from criminals such as this. And if it's not for, you know, this type of criminal who kills eight, I mean, that's a serial killer. Uh, who do you do it for? Yeah, yeah exactly. We, we got to hear today a, a brief statement of the, of the facts of the case, the agreed upon statements. And it was Every bit as gruesome as we all figured it would be, and every much serial killer style with repetitive circumstances in each one with methods of doing it, taking the trophy pictures and everything else. So, uh, I mean, the police did an excellent job. It's, or, you know, I have to come up to all the sentencing submissions. It's the, the tough part there is going to be for the people who want to speak to this, I think. Um, what about what we may have learned uh, about this during a trial? Is there any need from a tri- for a trial? I mean, obviously, it puts the families through hell, but is there is there a need just to discover what happened, or is that known? It's documented. We don't have to go over it. Yeah, well, the, uh, one of the lead detectives, David Dickinson, spoke uh, outside the courtroom today, Hank Edzinga, who was the, the lead detective on the case, but worked hand-in-glove with David. And he told me during the investigation, he, he relied on David's relentless attention to detail and seemingly being a man who neither had to go to the washroom or go to sleep for the whole case. Wow. He, just, he just worked through it, worked through it, worked through it, worked through it. So he had mentioned, uh, you know, the fact that uh, it was a tough case for them to work on. And, you know, they're, they're going to... We'll see where it ends up. I hope that the police are able to come out and give more explanation to the people because David Dickinson said uh, he made the sort of offhanded comment today, we may never know why these murders took place. Yeah. But I, but I think we need to hear a more fuller explanation. I would hope that the police would do that for the So is there the so you're suggesting that you know during the trial there's in, or information that would come out that could perhaps explain this in some way or 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 lend more uh, uh, information to 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 try to understand this. But again, it, do we need that? Is is that information needed? Uh, does this help the victims to 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 know exactly what happened or why someone did it? Do they have to go through that process? I, I think uh, on a voluntary basis, if people want to hear answers, I think they need to hear answers. Like, in particular, I guess, I, I guess Ross, if if they're the family and whatever, and they want answers, they could just ask the police, could they not? I mean, I'm sure police would. Now that it appears that the case part of it is over, I mean, they would be open to sharing that if they so wanted, would they not? You, you would expect, but there's also a wider community that may want answers on this, and that, that I think maybe the public. Uh, needs to know as well. I mean, the public was really a victim in, in all of this too, 
And, you know, in particular, I don't, I don't know this uh, for certain, but I, I have a feeling that the death of Andrew Kinsman and how he died and how he came to come in, come in contact with Bruce MacArthur, I think there's going to be some pretty important details around that that I that I hope uh, that I hope come out the fuller story. Uh, uh, what can you death. share? What can you share about that? What do you mean? Uh, uh, there's I've just heard I've just heard things that and, Andrew Kinsman, let's put it this way, was a very was a very fine man who was trying to do the best for his community, yeah. and uh, somehow got caught up in this, uh, in, in worrying about his community. But I'll, I'll leave to see if that gets spoken. I'm just saying, there's a lot of stories I think that yeah. can still come out of this. So, what happens now, Ross? Well, February 4th, they're going to be giving, the, say, the victim impact statements. They're going to be making submissions uh, towards sentencing. It'll be interesting to hear what comes out of the defense team uh, on this, for because uh, we've heard so far. Uh, zero uh, mitigating factors are coming out of this. No plea for mental health, or uh, you know, going for a diagnosis, or not criminally responsible. We've heard none of that. So that has. Are you surprised at that, Ross? Well, it, it's a card to be played. Whether or not it's a card that would work for someone, you would think it might be a card to be played to get a chance to go to a mental health facility instead of a jail. Yeah. Uh, for something like that. So, I mean, it's a, I'm not saying I want to see it played or whatever, but I'm just saying we didn't hear any of that. I mean, the defense team's job is to do everything they can that's morally and legitimately correct to put forward before the court to, to defend their client. So we haven't just heard anything yet. So it'd be interesting to hear what the defense has to say. Um, so he pleads guilty, no trial. Uh, will that affect his sentencing in such a way whether, you know, we were talking earlier about con- consecutive sentencing, or, although I, I can't see it making any difference in that decision, but what about even prison location, being close to his family? Would would any of that weigh in his favor for this? Uh, there, there are, they have to go through checklists. There, there's what's called mitigating factors and aggregating factors, and a mitigating factor is someone who pleads guilty uh, in advance and, and takes responsibility for their crime. Uh, you know, whether or not the prison system and the police, like I said, if they have to give any quarter to say something like, well, okay, we'll let you apply for parole. You'll never get it at 25 years, but we won't object to that. Or where he serves his sentence or something like that. I don't think the police have to give any quarter on that. So it will be interesting. I don't think the judge has to give it either. I mean, the pleas are here. So we'll just have to see where that lands. I think this is a complete knockout, tap out, submission on the floor, nothing to say but <laughs> for the call here from yeah. the judge as to what it's going to be. I don't, I don't see any mitigating factors. Um, now that this appears to be over, with the exception of the sentences and impact statements, as you said, which are coming up in February, um, what about the relationship between this community and Toronto Police? What has been learned there? Well, this, from my point of view, as I've said before, I think you're always going to have activists who are never happy and want to complain and want to do stuff. I think there's going to be other people who've seen the complete attention to detail. And when the police were able to find evidence that they pursued it as hard as any case I've ever seen be pursued with, with complete diligence, no, no dollar spared, no man hour spared uh, for doing it. And there is a real desire to try to work this out. The police don't have any desire to see people murdered and not be tried, not be arrested, you know, any of that. So hopefully there'll be a chance to come together out of this rather than a, a reason to tear apart. I mean, don't, don't forget that the, the first few men who went missing, no bodies, no crime scene, no nothing for the police to work on. It wasn't like the police were finding bodies in the village and ignored them and didn't follow the case up. 
it was very difficult when you don't have a body with the missing person and, and nothing to lead you anywhere. You know, when they finally got something, you know, they nailed it. When they finally got the, the information. You talked about uh, the area where uh, MacArthur did business and such as a landscaper, and and one of the, uh, the the residents there actually meeting a couple of the victims. How is that com- that community, uh, people who have been involved in this, people who had their property searched and such, how would they be reacting to this? Yeah, well, the, well, the one lady there, uh, I think her name is Fraser, who owns the house. I mean, that they've had the strangest of of deals there. I think they've had, uh, you know, ceremonial rites and singing and chanting at the house and churches coming out to bless the property and a garden planting. And, you know, they want to stay in the home and the community and all that, even though she had met a couple of the men and, you know, of course the bodies were, were, were put on the property. So, I mean, that one, I don't understand. I mean, a lot of the other people, of course, uh, the detectives were telling me didn't want to come forward or have their properties put out that, body parts may have been found there that Bruce MacArthur may have worked there for fear of the resale on their home. So I think there's, I think there's a lot of fallout. It's going to hit people in, in different ways. All right. Ross McLean has been with us. Crime specialist, security expert, RossMcLeanSecurity.com to find out more. Ross, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Yeah, and I hope the community really does heal. Thanks very much, Scott. All right, thank you. Uh, it is 12.56, of course. Uh, serial killer uh, Bruce MacArthur pleading guilty to eight counts of first-degree mur- uh, murder within Toronto's uh, gay community and uh, sentencing and uh, family impact statements coming up the beginning of February. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Will China now bully the U.S. like it has been Canada, considering where we are now with the extradition of the Huawei CFO? Uh, to talk more about all of this, Jia Wang is with us, Deputy Director, China Institute at the University of Alberta, and with us now. Jia, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you for having me. So it seems that up until now, uh, China has focused all of its attention on Canada and, and, and threatening Canada and so on and so forth. Uh, and and relatively said and has said relatively uh, nothing towards the United States on this, considering they were the ones that initiated this charge and this extradition. Now that they have announced that the extradition will in fact go through and that they've announced the charges, will this change the discussion? How does it change the discussion? Well, there's still a process that uh, uh, Ms. Meng Wanzhou would have to go through uh, in Canada as uh, the extradition request would have to be put through a Canadian legal system, the Canadian legal system. A, a judge will have to determine whether there's uh, enough evidence to support uh, the extradition um, request, and then the Justice Minister of um, Canada will have to give the final okay uh, for that extradition to happen. So there's still a bit of process to uh, go through in Canada. And then, of course, if uh, the, um, uh, the judgment uh, from a court uh, is uh, not in favor of uh, Ms. Meng's case, um, she and her legal team can still, still fight it. So there uh, uh, may still be some time before, uh, the, uh, say, the extradition will actually happen. Um, and uh, but of course, as you correctly pointed out, uh, this is really an issue between the two um, great powers, uh, China and the U.S. And then Canada, unfortunately, was caught in the middle and uh, and was taking a lot of the heat uh, from China. It's possible that China was 
um, hoping, uh, wondering, maybe this can be resolved when uh, Ms. Meng is still in Canada. Um, but it's just looking increasingly uh, unlikely as uh, the extradition process goes through. So, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but what you're saying is that we're still going to feel the pressure from China until the extradition uh, process actually is complete and either one way or the other, she's home or off to the United States. Yeah, there is that possibility, but I, um, we do see more of um, a shift that uh, China is um, talking with, well, directly with the U.S., but it's also, uh, it comes at a very interesting time as the Chinese vice premier is leading a delegation uh, to the U.S. right now in uh, the next, essentially next round of trade talk to see the two countries can still uh, reach a deal before March, before the next round of higher tariffs will be imposed on Chinese uh, uh, products. So it just comes out of, of course, a very interesting time. Um, that being said, Christia Freeland said that if the court warrants uh, extradition, that's what will happen. Uh, that would that would leave you to believe that uh, the Minister of Justice will not override what uh, the judge has, whatever the judge decides. Um, what do you think your, her chances are of being extradited? Well, there is a, um, a pretty um, high probability that she will be extradited. Again, this is uh, going to be in front of the court and the judge will have to weigh in on the, um, on the charges and right. on the evidence for her uh, potential extradition. And also, this is not a judge who will be deciding on her guilt or not. No. It's only a judge to determine uh, whether Ms. Meng should be extradited to the U.S. Mm-hmm. So the burden of proof is um, it's lower than, say, in a criminal case that right. you have to see whether this person is guilty or not based on the evidence. So if uh, any idea how long this process will take, now they have said that they, they are laying the, these charges and that they will uh, proceed with extradition. Um, any idea when this case would, would, would go to court here? And then if there's an appeal, how long that would take? Um, basically, uh, within Canada, it may not take very long for the um, judge to uh, be hearing the case about this case of uh, extradition request. Um, and they're even reporting that um, Ms. Meng is asked to uh, present herself at the court um, briefly even uh, today. Um, so they are, uh, this process already started, mm-hmm. uh, but it depends on when the uh, judgment will be handed down and then whether Meng's legal team will take up action after that judgment is handed down. Because most of, in most of the cases, when U.S. launch a extradition request um, through the Canadian court system, uh, in most of the cases, it was granted. So, uh, so what is happening? She is in court today, I understand. What is happening today in court? Um, I, I'm, I'm not too sure if, if that's, that is true. I just There were some reports saying that that might be the case. Yeah. Um, he might be informed of a request that was um, um, provided to the Canadian legal system might just be uh, something of uh, formality that she's um, right, right. informed of that fact, um, but we'll, we'll have to have to see. Uh, so, if she is extradited, then it is now in the hands of the United States, correct? And if they decide to move forward, press charges, go to trial, 
that then becomes their issue as opposed to Canada's. Is that correct? That uh, that should be uh, yeah should become a, a U.S. issue, um, and uh, but then of course there's still the concern of the uh, few Canadians implicated in this um, right. the whole battle between China and Canada. So how you know how their issues will be tackled or resolved in the end? So there's still that Canadian dimension. Um, so if now it does move to extradition and becomes an issue for the United States, uh, what does happen to those Canadians detained in China? Does that get pushed to the back burner? Well, then that will still require work uh, from um, uh, from Canadian uh, Canadian side and uh, and uh, say the Canadian uh, diplomatic. Uh, community may still have to uh, work hard and, and potentially uh, some senior level uh, uh, people in the in the government might be appointed to uh, tackle this this matter. Um, it's it it will be really hard to say what will come of it, but um, I fear they may there may not be a very quick solution. Uh, there was lots of chatter, of course, of what Donald Trump said in mentioning the name of the Huawei CFO while talking about U.S. China uh, China trade. Uh, did it once, and then you know uh, it, it kept quiet on that from there on in. Obviously, listening to his advisors, uh, John McCallum makes the same mistake and politicizes uh, all of this. Uh, some are worried that that may be uh, uh, affect the case in some way. Um, but on the other side, will China, will China leverage Canada with the, the detainees in order to perhaps uh, uh, leverage us or convince us to take the 5G network? Uh, last week, we heard a threat from the ambassador that there'll be repercussions if we don't take their 5G network. Uh, could China use this as much as uh, leverage on us as the U.S. is on, on them? Well, it is really uh, a matter that would need to be decided by uh, by Canada and to to judge its uh, uh, the national interest and to see whether it's better to allow the five G network um, uh, Huawei to compete for that or not. So, um, it um, China may use some leverage, uh, but after China's uh, Chinese ambassador made that. Um, a statement at a news conference. I think the Chinese uh, uh, spokesperson for the Chinese Foreign Affairs Department also retracted that and saying, uh, you know, we're not uh, going to bring uh, consequences to a country just because they deny Huawei as a competitor to build a 5G network. So Mm. there's a bit of inconsistent messaging there as well. Well, there seems to be on both sides there, uh, Jia, that's for sure. Um, That's for sure. If this does start down the extradition route and, and the CFO is off to the United States to stand trial, where do we go from there? I mean, this is intensified to the highest level, I'm sure, in the view of the Chinese. How does that change the discussion if, in fact, she is, you know, has to stand trial in the United States? Well, um, that really takes this matter, of course, out of the hand of uh, Canada, even before Canada is you know, playing essentially a facilitation role and not taking the lead on this matter because it's really a U.S. Uh, U.S. charge and it's uh, against Huawei and Huawei's uh, C- CFO. 
and um, and then it's uh, part of it, of course. Um, and it, the U.S. is also charging uh, the company uh, Huawei in in the U.S. and also the uh, headquarter of the company. Now even uh, Huawei's um, CEO, the founder, might be implicated somehow. Um, and Canada is. Um, really in here to facilitate that extradition uh, because it was U.S. request and uh, Canada is the US, uh, a U.S. ally. And once, uh, if Ms. Meng is extradited to the U.S., then um, China essentially cannot really pressure Canada even more for Canada to, to, to do more in this matter because one, the person is on uh, Canada's ground, at least Canada have some say in whether there's enough evidence to support her extradition. But when uh, Ms. Meng is extradited to the U.S., say if that were to happen, then um, essentially Canada, there's nothing Canada can do. Uh, so, mm. But this diplomatic issue and the few Canadians that um, are, were implicated in this whole diplomatic dispute and, and, um, and the political back and forth, uh, they, their fate will be the key, um, a key interest, a key thing that the Canadian uh, Canadian side will be focusing on, the Canadian government will be focusing on, and hopefully through some quiet but sophisticated diplomacy, uh, not necessarily um, making public statement in the media, but through some mm-hmm. skilled work of uh, through the diplomatic channels. Um, this problem can eventually be resolved because um, really for a lot of people. Um, you know, it's not a good outcome to see um, uh, if if the uh, the Canadians implicated somehow or not treated fairly, uh, or if the two countries, uh, Canada-China's relations, uh, are affected significantly because of this matter that is brought on by a third country. You know, it's almost as if we should, we need to get this over as quickly as possible so we can get back to the negotiating table and try to smooth things out again, because this is a no-win situation for anyone here. Um, will China start detaining Americans the way they were Canadians, or the way they have Canadians? Well, currently there uh, haven't been uh, any evidence, so um, we, we don't know. Again, this is um, um, U.S., China uh, are still in this, uh, intense trade negotiation and, and trade disputes. So let me ask so, you this. So um, China will detain Canadians because it's a smaller country and there's less at stake, but they won't detain Americans because there's too much financially on the line with the trade deal? Well, each country is making its uh, <clears throat> calculation based on its um, interest, based on uh, what's at stake, um, and uh, and based on what it think might work as a tactic, perhaps. And of course, China denies, and China says it's uh, the d- detention of the two uh, Canadians, and um, they're unrelated. Um, so there's only bad Canadians in China. There's no bad Americans there. Well, I, I just think it'll be fascinating to see after all that's happened and transpired over the last week or two in regard to what China has said, and they have threatened Canada quite a bit, whether they will take the same tactic with the United States. Yeah, I, I, uh, I suspect that China won't take the same tactic against the U.S. Um, there, there are many ways uh, China can still pressure the U.S., but U.S. is also um, China's leading trading partner um, and uh, one of the leading trading partners. And, and also the two countries have so much uh, on the trade front, on the economic front at stake. 
So I, I suspect China may take a very different tactic and, uh, and then doesn't want to have this whole situation uh, overblown, then somehow it uh, affects uh, also the trade negotiations that is going on right now. What does it say to the rest of the world when, you know, they're, they're retaliating the way they are with Canada, but differently towards the United States? How do you think this whole thing's playing out on the world stage and the perception of China's reaction? Well, um, again, it's based on certain calculation, and uh, and then there hasn't been quite the same type of situation uh, these three countries were in in the past. So, um, so I, I guess each country is making up its own strategy as it goes. So, um, for China, it's possible the country. I mean, it is um, a becoming increasingly powerful and assertive. So. It does want to maybe make an example um, of you know how this type of situation may go down and maybe use it as a warning for other uh, countries who are thinking of collaborating with the U.S. Again, it's it's a guess. That's it's possible. That's what um, China might be thinking. Um, but the U.S. Uh, and Canada, it is also a new situation in a way, and the U.S. is trying to. Um, basically, uh, rally up its old allies to somehow ban Huawei from uh, tapping into the next generation of uh, telecommunication framework, the 5G framework. Um, and there is, of course, uh, security concerns, but there's also commercial interest involved, as uh, there are a lot of American companies and European companies are also stand to benefit if Huawei is banned from competition in um, providing 5G network. Is all, the suspi- the is all the suspicion surrounding Huawei and the 5G network, is that warranted in your opinion? There, um, there are probably um, uh, uh, certain signs or it's more because this is um, a network that is built by a company that originated in China and the, um, say the OECD countries um, don't have too much trust in a country that is not their ally. It's it's China. So, um, but then of course Huawei announced that uh, the company is prepared to release all its source code, its um, information uh, to um, make it public or or at least make it available uh, to the uh, regulators uh, to see there's no backdoor of their network. Uh, and also, there's no real evidence at this point uh, through any, say, legal cases or uh, research uh, or intelligence service provide any real evidence that uh, Huawei has been. But let me ask you this, Ja. Is it, is it up to everyone else to prove that Huawei's clean or is, that, is it up to Huawei to prove to its customers that it's clean? And, 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 and I guess my opinion is when, when China and Huawei are trying to sell trust to the rest of the world, how can we trust or anybody in North America trust the, the, the Huawei 5G or China when they are detaining Canadians? And even if they walk back these threats, threatening Canadians. I mean, to me, that does more to harm uh, trust for China than it does to, to help it. I mean, their reaction to uh, the CFO uh, uh, extradition case, does that not speak volumes about this company in this country? Well, uh, the Chinese um, side claim that because, of course, it's also the uh, the crown jewel of the um, 
new tech uh, type of companies in China. It's, it's the pride of the country, and they will defend uh, the country and, and defend uh, the individual that is um, uh, uh, one of the more senior executives of this company. And China also alleged that the um, Western world is attacking the company because that they wouldn't want that that competition. They wouldn't want that uh, commercial interest lost by uh, maybe many uh, Western uh, Western countries. And then, of course, the Western countries will see it from a slightly different lens. And then, security is one of the top concerns. So it is. Um, uh, I mean. Again, while we said they would prove that they can, you know, release information to back up their statement that they're not building any backdoor into the system, and but and that, that being said, Jot, but that being said, Jot, sorry to interrupt, but does not the Communist Party of China still, in the end, have control? over what business and industry does there. So even though to this date they've never done it, I don't think anybody's questioning that. What they're questioning is the possibility is there for them to do it. And when we see their reaction to what has happened in China and the knee-jerk reaction to just take Canadians off the street and even sentence one to death, um, I don't know. To me, this is very unbalanced. Well, um China is a country that uh, it definitely doesn't, it doesn't have the same legal system and the same political system as most of the Western countries. Um, and China does do things um, a bit differently. I mean, it has a legal system and it has laws. And, uh, and then China um, says it's, it is uh, a law-binding uh, country and uh, it, it respects laws. Um, the way it, the laws are, implicate, uh, in, are implemented um, a, a bit different. It, the system um, it may not be as robust and transparent as the uh, Western uh, countries. And, um, and China has become um, more powerful. And, and it also seems to see the world a bit differently uh, when it comes to um, Huawei and 5G and China sees this as a company that it, could, uh, it provides cheaper and perhaps better solutions um, to um, a lot of the uh, five, uh, 5G needs. So, um, and it, it thinks it has been, the company has been treated unfairly uh, by other countries and somehow served as a target. Um, uh, then that it might be uh, also targeting China as it's, um, you know, the economy grows mm-hmm. um, a, bit, a little slowly, but it still continues to grow, and China thinks there is a place in the world for China. Um, and then, of course, the uh, U.S.-led Western allies uh, sees um, a slightly different story, and, uh, and then especially the U.S. see it as a security uh, issue, um, and then um, not unnecessarily free from you know, commercial interest um, in this as well. So it is a complex situation, and um, of course, if China can do things uh, in a similar manner to um, a lot of the Canadian allies or U.S. allies, and maybe um, the system becomes more transparent, uh, and then there's more check and balances, then that would perhaps provide more confidence in other countries in working with with China and working with uh, Chinese companies. Um, but China now, it is not the China 
40, 50 years ago. Right. And, and a lot of these companies, they do, um, I mean, the private companies especially, um, they are driven by uh, innovation. They are driven by uh, commercial spirits. And uh, there are a lot of great entrepreneurs in China that build these um, big companies. Um, so there's, there's a way, um, uh, hopefully way forward that, mm the two systems could somehow converge a bit more. The Chinese system can become more transparent and then um, make it uh, basically eventually earn more trust, perhaps, uh, from uh, other countries uh, in the world. Jia, I'm going to have to let you go there. We're simply out of time. Jia Wang has been with us, Deputy Director, China Institute of the University of Alberta. Jia, thank you so much for the time and insight. Fascinating discussion. Much appreciated. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's bring in Michael Tobe, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, and former speechwriter for uh, the former prime minister. He is with us now. Michael, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Your thoughts? I found this fascinating. Is anyone listening to this, or is this too deep into the weeds for the average Canadian? Well, uh, right now, according to something I read on CTV, the, this video has been viewed over or close to 118,000 times. I have to assume it's higher than that. I haven't looked recently, but I think people are gradually starting to find it, looking at it, and deciding whether they agree with it or not. It's not a bad argument overall. Um, populism in itself is not something that, it's something that actually Harper and I have broken on in the past over the years because, remember, Stephen Harper came from the Reform Party of Canada, which, yes, had small-c conservative values, but was strongly based on Western or Western provincial-style populism, which was very typical following the, uh, the leadership model that Preston Manning, the original leader, had. And Mr. Harper has also included that as part of his conservative brand. What he's doing here, though, because populism in itself can sometimes be problematic and has been problematic for conservative movements in the past, he's trying to meld the two together. And even though he's suggesting that it's conservatism, it really is a sort of a new model of conservatism by putting these two factions which, yes, are often linked together, but can be diametrically opposed as well, and to sort of find, shall we call the best method overall based on how populist conservatism can handle, as he said, the four principles of uh, globalization, immigration, trade, and uh, market economics, or the free market, if you wish. It's a very unique and novel way of looking at it. I will give him credit for that. I think there is a rational approach to it, and especially when we look at the success that U.S. President Donald Trump had in 2016, which was in large part not to conservatism, but to populism in many ways, I think that there is at least, if nothing else, a discussion we can have to see if this is the right way to go for conservatives moving forward. Is populism a bad word? Is he wrong to try to link that to conservatism? And and in your mind, define the word for everybody, populism. Well, sure. Look, no, populism is not a bad thing. I mean, there's populists of the left, there's populists of the right. Populism is not a market ideology. It's basically, in many different ways, populism is sort of a, a populist movement is a group of people who are very like-minded on particular issues, and they try to basically use that in the scope and interest of 
say, a country, a province, a city, town, etc. Western-style populism or provincial populism was the belief that the Western provinces had been left behind. So the populist entity worked as people getting together in Alberta, Saskatchewan, B.C., etc., and fighting for their rights and their views and values, which they felt had been superseded by Eastern interests, or in other words, Eastern Canadian interests. So populism is really a grassroots movement of people forming together for a a particular objective or a series of objectives. It's not a bad thing necessarily at all. The problem is that, unfortunately, there are certain people within the conservative movement, including here in Canada, who are actually just populists and not conservatives. In other words, they're not as intensely interested as, say, I am in how free market economics works or fiscal conservatism or social conservatism at that. They are more basically people with one vested interest or one issue type people who just look at things in a very narrow prism and don't look at it from a small c conservative perspective. That's why Harper's model is kind of unique and interesting in itself because he's taking two ideologies that, as I said before, often are put together but really shouldn't be because they're very separate from one another, and he's trying to find a middle road and a way that conservative parties, like the federal conservative party overall here and many of the provincial PC parties, uh, the Saskatchewan party, even the B.C. liberals and others, can use it as a model going forward. That's what makes it a very intellectual argument, and that's a way, I believe, that populism could have a widespread positive appeal going forward if we implement some of what Mr. Harper has discussed. Again, this comes back to something I'm sure I talked to you about and many other experts and, and poli-sci uh, uh, people across North America. And, and, and right from the very start of Donald Trump's campaign, uh, I hammered home that politicians don't get why people like this guy. They don't understand why this worked. And Hillary Clinton standing up and calling everybody who, who, who listened to him a deplorable didn't help. And to me, that's exactly what Stephen Harper's speaking of here. Yes, and if you actually read Stephen Harper's new book, Right Here, Right Now, which I've reviewed in the United States, um, that book actually talks about the fact that Mr. Harper didn't think Donald Trump was going to yeah, win. He yeah. didn't, you know, like me, he, ha- he held the same point of view. He didn't see him as a conservative or as a Republican. Quite frankly, he didn't see him as a like-minded political soldier, so to speak. But yet he watched it happen. He watched Trump, who he thought, you know, was just going to be a candidate that would be in for a month or so and would drop out. He just watched, as you said, people began to resonate with a message that a lot of people just thought in sort of an elitist manner was not interesting. It wasn't speaking to them. When in fact, a lot of what Donald Trump was talking about, the forgotten men and women draining the swamp in Washington, making America great again, and all the other slogans he used, actually resonated with large swaths of the American population who actually believed that their interests were being lost, that they weren't being heard by the elites in Washington. And they just felt isolated, and they wanted to basically take hold 
of a government, and more importantly, democracy and liberty and freedom, all these values that they cherish, but that they felt that at least in Congress, if nothing else, that being in Washington, D.C., they were not being heard and not being listened to. Trump spoke directly to the people. You can hate him to death as much as you want, and there's lots of things we've been critical of about him, including things I've said about him, but he tapped into a resource that people had completely forgotten, and more specifically, that Republicans had completely forgotten about. And that's where I think, if nothing else, for all the insanity that's happened over the last couple of years with Trump, there are certain principles that Republicans and conservatives and others can use to their benefit going forward, and we would be wise to listen to Trump and not ignore everything he has to say. What do conservatives take from this? I mean, this, you know, Stephen Harper, former prime minister, uh, you know, he's obviously not running. Why, why would he do this? Stephen Harper has decided in, in recent years to sort of get back out into the public discourse and talk about issues. You know, he runs Harper & Associates, a consulting firm, in Calgary, and certainly he has been out and about in terms of being involved with pro-democratic um, organizations. He's been involved in speaking tours. Like, he's not been completely invisible, but he's not been very visible either up until recently. And I think what's basically happening is that, and I haven't asked him directly on this, my sense is that Harper still wants to play a role in the public sphere. He realizes that the best way he can do it is the way that he succeeded both domestically and internationally, which is to use his intellectual approach not only to conservative ideas but to politics in general and speak to people in relatively straightforward language to give them an understanding of what his ideas are, what his views are, and what he perceives as being the future for the conservative movement. That's why I think he's out there, and I perhaps he senses that, while obviously not having anything against Andrew Scheer and the Tories, of which he doesn't, and obviously he's supportive of them, he probably feels that another conservative voice, including a Canadian conservative voice, and one that is respected internationally, is something that is of critical importance to the Canadian conservative movement as a whole. That's why I think he's out there, Scott. And quite frankly, you're going to be seeing more of Stephen Harper and not less as time goes along. How do the conservative? How, how does the conservative party feel about this? How does Andrew Scheer feel about this? I doubt they're bothered. Uh, Andrew Scheer would not be bothered by Stephen Harper speaking out. He knows that, like all former prime ministers, and that includes liberal ones like Jean Chrétien, Paul Martin, and others, we expect our prime ministers to make statements and hopefully come up with intelligent ideas or thought-provoking ideas that will help the country as a whole. Sometimes they obviously speak for themselves, as we've seen what Kim Campbell has been doing lately. But in other cases, we know that it's actually a benefit to have them come out and speak on behalf of either their own personal points of view or on behalf of Canada. I don't think Andrew Scheer, and I certainly don't think the federal Tories would have the slightest problem with that, Mr. Scheer is running in this year's election to win. He's obviously benefited by the fact that a former prime minister like Stephen Harper, who does support him, is coming out and talking about ideas that are of critical importance not only to conservatives in Canada, but should be of critical importance to Canadians and other right-leaning individuals in general. 
For that reason, it helps the Canadian conservative movement. It doesn't hurt them. And it helps the federal Tories as time goes along. It doesn't hurt them at all. Andrew Scheer has one objective in mind, which is to become the next prime minister. Stephen Harper has another objective in mind, which is to become an important, intelligent leader for Canadian conservatives and conservatives in general. Two very different things going on at once, but they can both work to each other's benefit. No problems at all, and I certainly don't believe there is any jealousy whatsoever from cheering the Tories. I loved it when he called voters customers. Yeah. You know, and serving the customer as opposed to telling them what they should be buying. Right. And, and that's a good thing. And, and I know some people say, oh, come on, he's talking down to them. No, he's actually not. A customer is actually one of the most important cogs in the wheel when it comes to the way a business runs. Remember, the customer is always right. Yes. And it's such a simple philosophy that people have forgot. But again, if you look back, and it's hard for some, I'm sure some of your listeners to fathom, if you look at some of the language that Donald Trump used as U.S. president, he didn't say that the, you know, the people were customers, but he spoke to them yeah. as they were like customers. Yeah. You know, here's what I'm selling. Here are the ideas that make sense. Here's your way to play a role in the country. Vote for me. So, believe it or not, that actually is a benefit, and it's not a negative thing when you have people coming out and sort of saying, you know, what does the government and what does the country stand for, and does it help me in any way? The unfortunate unfortunate thing is Donald Trump has created so much negativity and so much divisiveness that anything that he does say that makes any sense, people just blow off. Uh, I was talking to another policy about this uh, the other day when we were talking about the whole McCallum thing and such, Mm -hmm. and we harked back to the Harper election campaign campaign way back when, when he would say that Trudeau was not ready. Right. Uh, as you watch the whole McCallum thing unfold, could they not go back to this slogan? See, told you, not ready. Lots Easy. of image, no substance. Yeah, easily. It's not going to be very hard for them to do. I mean, this is, and this is just one of several things they can use. They can use Trudeau joking about China. They can basically use the way that he just thinks that, you know, that the debt is going to magically reverse itself. There are so many things they can go after with this prime minister. We haven't even talked about how internationally he has really, in many ways, destroyed Canada's good image because no one pays attention to Canada any longer. Ignore the G20 conference and various other things. It doesn't mean that Canada isn't there. It doesn't mean that Canadians, under, you know, being represented by Mr. Trudeau, aren't going to be presenting ideas, and Mr. Trudeau won't be presenting ideas to others, but we're not being listened to, and we're being ignored in many ways, because I think a lot of world leaders sense what a growing number of Canadians do, that Justin Trudeau isn't ready for this position, and he never was ready. And it just shows each day as time goes along especially with the John McCallum affair, that really in this case, I mean, Mr. Trudeau should have jumped immediately when John McCallum basically went rogue at that 40-minute press conference, and he should have bumped him off immediately. The fact that he allowed, and he and his senior advisors allowed it to fester for another 72 to 96 hours really doesn't say very much, because that's someone who's not ready for prime time. If that had happened during Stephen Harper's reign as prime minister, Mr. McCallum would have been packing his bags within minutes. Trust me on that. Michael Toastman with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, former uh, speechwriter for uh, Stephen Harper. Michael, thank you so much for the time. Fascinating piece. Thank you. My pleasure. Have a great day. 
This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.